the very ethos of competition is better, faster, stronger. We see it in every aspect of business, in life, and of course, sports, and more specifically, the Olympic Games. And in 2020, when we saw what the world looked like without sports, we also saw what a society looks like without rooting for a common goal. And with the opening ceremony on Friday for the Olympics, I thought it would be interesting to dive into the logistics of the Tokyo Olympics and how that process has evolved and continues to evolve even days before the opening ceremony. Welcome into another episode of Cyberly. I am your host, Blythe Brumleaf, and we talk about the B2B economy, the tech place, and not tech place, but we talk about B2B marketing, we talk about tech, we talk about the attention economy and how it all fits into the world of logistics. And so in today's show, we're talking about the logistics of hosting the Olympics and inside the look trenches of what the recruiting world looks like with Charlie Safro and what retailers should already be planning for with the upcoming holiday season with Andrew Cox. But into our first topic, I want to dive into the logistics of the Tokyo Olympics. But first, we got to take it back a little bit with a little bit of a history lesson. So the first known Olympics were held in 776 BC. The ancient Olympic Games were initially a one-day event until 684 BC. And the ancient games, including running, the long jump, the shot put, javelin, box, boxing was actually one, equestrian events was another one, and then another sport, pancreation which is a martial art mix of boxing and wrestling, in case you wanted to save yourself from a Google search, because I literally just looked that up right before the show. But city-states would declare truces just so their athletes could participate in the games, and 5% of freeborn men would make this trek to the Temple of Zeus in Olympia, where athletes complete, <laughs> competed naked as a tribute to the Greek god Zeus, because they wanted to show Zeus their physical power and muscular physique, and it also helped with intimidating other competitors. So these Olympics ended in 394 AD because they were seen as pagan celebrations. And then the games were officially brought back in 1896 in Athens, Greece. And then finally, in 1924, the Winter Olympics were born. And now that has begun the cycle of alternating between the summer and winter sports. So fast forward to the Tokyo Olympic Games and the process of getting the Olympics has evolved. This is a process that has been 10 years in the making when Japan first submitted their Olympic proposal. And for context, Game of Thrones was entering its first season on HBO in order to give a little bit of a background of how long this process has been going on. So once that approval process is completed, then construction begins. And there's a tremendous amount of effort to manage the transportation and facilities of the people in general. And now from the people aspect, 41,000 non-athletes. So think about all of these people that are coming into town, not only coming into town, but actually are managing the entire process, and that's operations, construction, facility, media, etc. So 41,000 non-athletes, and then 11,000 athletes. Actually, it's a little bit more than 11,000 athletes. These two groups alone would have taken up nearly all of the, or nearly half of all available hotel space over in Tokyo. And so to combat that, originally, they were planning on 600,000 tourists coming to Tokyo, and they were going to bring in cruise ships in order to help with hotel space. But obviously, with the tourists not being allowed to come into the country of Japan and sit in the stands and actually watch these events, that's been shifted a little bit. So now the Olympic Committee really only has to manage the, the close to what, oh, just a little over uh, or close to 60,000 people. 
So from the logistics aspects, there's different phases of logistics, of Olympic logistics. So you have to, there's the establishment phase, there's the resupply phase, and then there's the recovery phase. Now, and then there's also within each of those little, not little, but they're very vast phases that you have to, to manage over the course of the last 10 years. But you also have to protect the confidentiality of any technology, of any equipment, of the processes that are going on in all of these different Olympic sites. Then you have to have power and independent backup power for all of the media and the tech and security. And this is all in a 243-page document that the that the host city has to agree and has to abide by. Set these terms are set by the IOC. And so major areas to think about are the location of these facilities. Japan had to decide whether to build new or use temporary space or to refurbish a current space. There are dozens of these facilities all in and around the city of Tokyo, many of them acting like many cities with residential, housing, banking, food, laundry, hair salon, even a dedicated area for mourning. Now, the concentration of people to supplies, there's the space needed for the people and the space needed for the supplies to fuel these many cities within a city. So let's take the the 2016 Olympic Games in Brazil, for example. The Olympic Games used 32,000 table tennis balls, 400 soccer balls, 8,400 badminton balls, 250 golf carts, 54 boats, 80,000 chairs, 70,000 tables, 29,000 mattresses. 60,000 hangers, 6,000 TV sets, and 1,000 smartphones. And now keep in mind, this was back in 2016. So here we are, the 2020 Olympics technically taking place in 2021. It's probably going to increase, especially when you look at that number of the 29,000 mattresses. I know most of you have probably heard that story about the, the mattresses made out of cardboard boxes that are all of the Olympic athletes are now sleeping on, but more than 11,000 of them are, are of those custom mattresses are are being used for the Olympic athletes. Now think about all of this plus the COVID impact. And that adds another layer to the already complex logistics situation that everyone is dealing with. They haven't even they, they haven't even completely ruled out canceling the Olympics at the last moment. But in my opinion, I doubt that actually will happen with all of the athletes in Japan already. So even without the live fans, there's still a huge opportunity from a digital perspective. The sheer price tag of hosting the Olympics and moving them back a year is staggering. At $26 billion, this is already going to be the most expensive Olympics ever in history. But advertising and possible future tourism dollars are really the only aspects where the country could see a positive return. So thinking of it from an advertising and marketing side of things, 76000 or 76,000, 76% of the Olympics revenue comes from broadcasting rights. NBC Universal is the one that has the broadcasting rights here in the US, and they expect to, its broadcast to attract even more than 120 advertisers at a 20% increase from the 2016 games, and that's per adage. Now, but they'll have to make addition, they'll have to make up for those additional advertisers. Even Toyota earlier this week, they announced that they were pulling out all of their advertising. And this is also in addition to McDonald's no longer being the fast food food of choice over in the Olympic Village, which was extremely popular, especially among the non-US based 
athlete crowd that shows up and, and, and just wants to get that taste of American fast food. So obviously there's a health conflict, uh, conflict of interest there. So McDonald's, I think it was about three years ago that they decided that they were no longer going to be the official uh, food provider within the Olympic Village, which quick little side note, they provided all of that food in the Olympic Village for free. So I thought that that was a pretty fascinating tell as well. Now, it, also with this advertising and marketing strategy, it brings in the importance of telling stories with broadcasting. The broadcast building itself is now the most important facility in out of them all. And Windover Productions has a fantastic video on this, on the incredible logistics of the Olympics. I, I suggest you, highly suggest you all go watch that. But in this video, they talked about how OBS, which is a, the host broadcaster for all Olympic events, they are an open source platform that anyone can use. You can go download OBS right now and you can use it as your broadcast software, but they are the official host broadcaster for all Olympic events and they're responsible for each of these broadcast feeds with, with some incredible numbers because the networks that even though they have the broadcasting rights, NBC isn't out here sending a camera crew to all of the different events. OBS is actually handling that and they're responsible for 8,100 broadcast employees during the games. They're capturing an estimated 9,500 hours of content. Then they're sending that to 64 world feeds that are then sent to official broadcast sponsors like NBC. Now, at these 42 venues, more than 1,000 cameras and 3,600 microphones will be used. And the broadcast center is acting as a 24-7 operation, which is essentially also acting as a mini small town where they have places to sleep, to eat, to, to do your laundry, all of these different things within that main broadcast center, which has now become, because of COVID, the central point of all storytelling. Now, no fans means no families in the stands themselves. So, so they're going to have to get a little creative with the digital celebrations because that's going to be that in-person band-aid. Preston McKellen, he is the player content director for the PGA Tour, told me how they handled fanless PGA events in 2020 by saying, you got to try to showcase more of the overall experience. That's a big part of it. More camera angles. Also think about different styles of content to reach people where they want to consume it. And then make sure fans feel invited to watch. That's how they handled the fanless PGA Tour events. Now, I have a prediction that it's probably going to be a very similar to how the NFL draft used families in that at-home viewing experience in order to showcase what that emotional journey looks like for when a player gets drafted. This is the Olympics. I don't have to tell a lot of people that the Olympics is the major milestone of how these athletes they've trained their entire lives for. And so for the families that have likely been the ones that are driving that athlete to and from all of their different practices since the time that they were a little kid, that's the opportunity where you, you really want the families involved. And so I suspect that they're going to have some capabilities where they're recording the families at home. And then if the footage, if they win, if the footage is good, then they're going to showcase that and, and broadcast that out to their various partners. So I think that that's probably the route that they're going to take. But the storytelling is what's going to be the most impactful here. So not only do we have the new sports debuting, and that is surfing, you also have skateboarding, you have sport climbing, which is kind of like a super fast rock climbing. Then you have three on three basketball, which is it looks incredible. They're only playing with one hoop instead of two hoops on each side of the court. They're playing with one hoop and it's three on three. Then karate is also making its Olympic debut. 
And then the making the comeback is women's softball, which you might have seen has already kind of gotten started a couple days ago. If you're watching this show live on on Thursday of of the Olympics week, they the softball already made its its grand comeback to the Olympics. So Tokyo originally submitted a bid for the Olympics after the the devastation to the entire country of Japan. Japan, if you remember about the earthquake, that was more than 10 years ago. And they argue, especially the mayor of Tokyo at the time, that they did this in order to restore civic and national pride. And now that the entire world has gone through a pandemic together, the world needs something to collectively cheer about. And that's what makes the Olympics so important to society. Now, just take a look at one of these displays that we're actually showing off on on the screen right now. That's been in the making since 1964, where every country brought seeds. Those seeds were planted and grown. And then the wood used from those seeds was crafted into Olympic rings from each each country and then put on display all around the world. It, It really is from a visual perspective and just to think how long this has been in the making, that really goes to show the level of details that goes into the logistics of the Olympics from all facets of the operation. Now, thinking about from the athletes who have trained their entire lives for a moment, athletes thrive on routine. And the last year has been anything but routine. But their desire to win for pride is what fills our competitive spirit and keeps our soul, you know, sort of wanting to be that better, faster, stronger, that competition aspect that we talked about earlier in the show. And it's also why many companies will focus on recruiting former athletes, or they'll focus on people who are really big sports fans, because that that competition fuels successes in other areas of our lives. So just take a look at some of the stories that have come out of the Olympics just over the the last few, not few years, but over the last, you know, say couple of decades. Kelly Holmes is one of the first ones. Kelly Holmes of the UK. She has battled multiple injuries. She struggled with mental health problems, but she never gave up on those on on that dream and won two Olympic gold medals in track and field. Another story that was really captivating as I was doing research for this is Abby Diascatino. I'm not pronouncing that right, so forgive me, but she's of the U.S. and she was helped by Nikki Hamblin of Australia when she failed dur- or when she fell during an event. Obviously, that that instance didn't result in the outcome that she wanted to. But what was on display here is that sportsmanship that everyone loves to see from the Olympics. Now, seeing athletes like this also inspires the next generation. Just like this little girl that you can see here where her dad is helping her practice a routine just like the gymnast Allie Reisman. These types of stories are incredible to see because it's through the lens of inspiring future generations and inspiring people from all over the world. And finally, I want to play this next video from Derek Redman proving that you can never fail if you continue to move forward. Send this video to someone to give them some motivation to keep trying. This is Derek Redmond, a British sprinter who was favored to medal in the 400-meter Olympic sprint. Nearly halfway through the race, Derek came to a stop because of a severe injury. Derek fell to the ground in agony because he had just torn his hamstring. However, he got back up. As he continued the race limping, a man came down from the stadium and broke past security. He then rushed to Derek's side to help him finish. This man was his father. He said, you don't have to do this. And the son replied, yes, I do. So he said, well, then we're going to finish this together. As they crossed the finish line together, nearly 70,000 people gave them a standing ovation, teaching us that you can never fail if you continue to move forward. 
what a powerful video. It still brings tears to my eyes as I was watching this because you, you see all these great moments of Olympic athletes. And, and, and oftentimes, what are the more powerful stories is, is when you see a sign of, of what he would probably initially consider as a failure. But that story right there resonates with you and resonates with generations for years to come. So those are the kind of stories that come out of the Olympics. And I, it, it makes the experience so vital and so important and just competition in general, because what is competition if not for the Olympics persevering? These are the important stories to share. And out of the thousands of people, no matter their demographic, who come together to make this event happen, th this is... This is what makes us human, and this is what drives us. So the opening ceremony gets started on Friday at 6.55 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, airing on NBC for a period of 16 days. And then they'll follow that up with the closing ceremonies. And that's also where the broadcasting opportunity is going to come into play, because usually the opening ceremonies and the closing ceremonies are the opportunity for that host city to really show off why people could come and visit and, and, and why they were chosen to be a host city to begin with. So it's just really powerful storytelling that I hope that we'll be able to, to continue to see all throughout the 16 days of the Olympics that get started tomorrow, Friday at 6.55 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, from the competitiveness, competitiveness of sports and to the competitiveness in recruiting, now is a good time to bring in our next guest, Charlie Safro. She is the president and founder of CS Recruiting. And okay, Charlie, before we dive in, I want to know what's your favorite Olympic sport that you have to watch. All right, it looks like we might have a little bit of technical difficulties. Hopefully we can bring Charlie back here in the next couple of minutes, but I, I'm sure that, you know, she's probably got a few athletic sports in order to keep on her radar. So while we wait for Charlie to come back, let's go ahead and dive into one of these stories that I really thought was going to be really impactful, and that is how to be a good podcast guest. Now from Alex Greenwood's Medium Post, he is a PR pro and social media strategist. And the, the ones that he mentioned were how to be a really good podcast guest. And obviously, uh, this is not the fault of, of Charlie as I bring up the, this topic because we uh, the, the sound issues are probably on our end. Um, so while we wait to bring Charlie back on, let's talk about how to be a good podcast guest because she's going to be a good podcast guest already. So we'll hear from her in a minute. But the ones I like and that you need for every show and when you think about it is you want to see send them in one email. Any any guest that you have on your show, or if you want to be a good guest, you need to be able to pitch yourself to other folks within the industry, maybe other industry-related podcasts. And so from that aspect, you really need to think about it, that you want to provide all of the information that you want to have that person be successful. And so when you think about them being successful... You can think about uh, requesting this information in one email. So a short bio you want to send them. You want to also send over your website, social media links, anything like that, a headshot. Um, that's how you can really be a good podcast guest because then you're making the situation easier for the host to decide if, you, if they want to bring you on their show or not. Another really good example is also having yourself some water off to the side. If you do get that podcast guest, spot is secured, then having water near you is the ultimate lifesaver. So while we have that story kind of wrapped up, I think what we're going to do actually from here is we are going to bring in Andrew Cox. Uh, while we wait on Charlie, let's go ahead and bring in Andrew. He was our guest 
that we were going to talk about um, with Olympic. Let's just keep the Olympic conversation going. And with a, and Andrew's got his water ready for him as well. I've got mine off to the side that I can't wait to, to get a drink for because um, we're, we're experiencing a few little difficulties here. But let's go ahead and dive into uh, with Andrew Cox. Now, Andrew, I'll, I'll start this off with, this, with a similar question. What is the one Olympic sport that you have to watch? Uh, if I had to say one, I'd probably put it in sevens rugby, but I, I'd say I can't say it's just one. And I'll also say I love the Olympics, and I'll say that I really go after individual athletes, so I, I watch a wide range of sports. This year in particular, I know I heard you earlier talking about skateboarding coming in for the first time. I'm very excited to uh, watch the skateboarding competition, and baseball is back for 2020 only. It's not going to be back in 2024, but because Japan loves baseball so much, there are six teams competing for the baseball Olympics this year, so I'll be watching that as well. Oh, that's rad. I didn't even know about that. I thought it was just the women's softball that was making the grand comeback. So that's awesome to hear that 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 baseball will be making its return. I know that one that really stood out to me is is, is the surfing aspect and then also the three on three basketball, which sort of brings me back to like the, you know, growing up in the youth days when you would just go to the nearest basketball court and you got one hoop and then you just had to play against your friends. So it, I, I've seen some promo or some training videos of it. Three on three basketball uh, already looks like it's going to be an incredible watch. But switching it back to your role at, at Freight Waves, you focus a lot on, you primarily focus on the retail sector, but what initially got you interested in this segment of the industry enough to want to own that media coverage? I've been, I, I dates back a long ways. I think I have to thank my mom for this. So uh, my father traveled a lot when I was young. So I was with my mom most afternoons, four or five days of the week. And she loves to shop and she's a bargain hunter. So I spent afternoons in Ross and TJ Maxx and Sam's Club and Walmart. And I just spent a lot of time in stores with my mom. So I was always just in stores and I always was paying attention to the way products were laid out and uh, about how things were curated. So I was always interested in stores. And then, you know, we'll talk more about how the newsletter came about, the community came about here at FreightWaves. But when there was an opportunity to kind of take take all the knowledge that I was gaining at FreightWaves at the time. I was writing these long-form research reports, and I, I was really like a mile wide and inch deep on a lot of things, and I was really wanting to focus in on one area. And I love retail. I am a, I am a, a very good American consumer in that I probably spend more money than I should. Uh, and it just, I like, I, like, uh, I like nice things. I like consumers, and I really care about retail. Now, I, I know that this sort of seemingly changes on a dime, but can you give us a brief rundown on what the state of the retail industry looks like right now? Yeah, you're definitely right that it changes constantly. I mean, dating back to the days of bazaars, it's been in constant evolution. But right now, the, the challenges, the headaches that retailers are dealing with are really common headaches that pretty much everybody's dealing with no matter what they sell or uh, what they manufacture. It's The two big things are inventory and labor. So inventories are remarkably low from a historical standpoint. Nominally, they're actually a little bit, they have been able to grow, especially the, the big box retailers, the Targets, Walmarts, Home Depots, Lowe's. They've actually been able to grow inventories year over year. But let's say they've, you know, just as, as an example, as a group, they've been able to grow inventories about 4%, but sales are up 18 to 20%. So it's just not being able to keep up with growth. So inventory is definitely one piece. And we'll talk about some of the port congestion and, and, um, and the things that are going on there, container availability that's making that even worse. But inventory is definitely one. And then labor is the other. 9.3 million jobs. Several million of those are in retail. I read a report from, um, from Salesforce that came out this Monday that they estimated there's a 350,000 person uh, labor shortage in retail leading up to the holiday season that they don't think will be filled. 
And so that's leading to higher wages. Uh, I've seen, a, on average, a 50% increase in, in retail wages, which is great for the workers, not so great for these uh, companies' margins. But in any case, labor and inventory are the two things keeping everybody up at night. So so labor and inventory are a big reason for, for what's keeping people up at night. But it, a lot of this is being driven off of COVID and the e-commerce boom. Is is With a lot of these retailers, if they don't have an e-commerce arm to their business, are they essentially doomed to fail? Well, not not necessarily. I'd say I'd say it this way. I heard Simeon Siegel, who is a fantastic analyst at BMO Capital Markets, he was on my show a few months ago, and he said he was talking about um, ship from store when he made this comment. But he said it applies to e-commerce, and it really applies to many things. And the, the statement is: This is something that if you ignore, you ignore at your peril. But that doesn't mean that everybody should embrace it. There are some great businesses that have completely ignored e-commerce, or not e- ignored e-commerce, but took a step towards it and realized. This really doesn't fit us. And the ones I'm thinking of in particular are the off-pricers. So think of TJ Maxx, Ross, Mm. Burlington. These companies have very little online presence because they don't really know what is in their stores. And they have different stuff in every store. And that treasure hunt experience is very difficult to replicate online. So they do very well without an e-commerce presence. Um, If you are a big box retailer or if you are a brand that owns stores in which you have pretty replicable inventory from store to store, you need an online presence. You need a way, you need a channel for which people can buy goods online and pick it up in store, have it delivered. You need options. So certainly there, but there are great businesses that have basically no e-commerce and mostly they're the off-pricers and the uh, and the really low um, retail. So think of Dollar Generals, Dollar Tree, those types of stores. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, especially from the treasure hunt aspect of it, because you look at some of these retailers like TJ Maxx, and you would just, from from a surface level, think that it would be really simple for them to just add an e-commerce functionality to their their business operations. But knowing all of that, that in-store experience, that's really fascinating to know. Now, now going back to the e-commerce portion of things, we know that Amazon and the Walmarts of the world obviously excel at the e-commerce portion. But are there any other retailers out there that are doing some creative ways in order to to keep up with those big box Joneses. Yeah, absolutely. There's a few that I'll name uh, and I'll break it up into a couple different boxes. There's some there's some stores that are doing remarkable things with their fulfillment from store and leveraging stores to fulfill an incredible amount of their online sales from their store. I think the best one here is Target. They fulfill you know, about two-thirds of their online orders from stores. About 95% of their sales are being fulfilled by store. And then you look at um, Lowe's and Dick's Sporting Goods. I'll talk about Dick's ad nauseum throughout this because I'm really impressed with what Dick's is doing. They fulfill 70% of online orders from stores, and 50% oh, wow. of their online orders are, with, are, are available within 15 minutes. And I think 95% are, are ready within an hour. They're extremely quick. It's much easier to do that if you're only picking up three or four items compared to you know if you're doing a BOPIS at Walmart or Target where you're doing you know, a, large, a large basket order. But in any case, they're doing a great job with leveraging the back of their stores to fulfill online orders really fast and doing it at a great level. And then you have, you have companies like Chewy and like Wayfair that are direct-to-consumer companies. They are dabbling in uh, some brick-and-mortar spaces. But these are companies that deliver big and bulky stuff. They deliver 60-pound bags of dog food and 150-pound um, furniture, and they do it within three to four days, and they do it with free shipping, and they've, they've they've built networks, they've built their entire logistics network around big and bulky stuff, and that was something that was very difficult to do. You think back to the Pets.com days, that was un- they were unable to do that in the early 2000s because the logistics infrastructure was not there. They have that now, and they've built it themselves. And the last one I'll say is uh, on this new, I don't even know if you've heard of these companies, I'm not sure if they have them done in Jacksonville. We don't have them here in Chattanooga yet, not quite big enough. 
but it's this whole age of, of instant retail. So uh, the big ones are GoPuff, Joker, Gorillas, and these are micro-fulfillment centers. They're dark stores, more or less, that have three to 5,000 SKUs, mostly groceries and essentials, some beer, alcohol, that kind of stuff. But you get very cheap delivery, and it's delivered within 30 minutes. That's kind of their shtick. Oh, wow. And it's incredible. I'm really excited for GoPuff to launch in Chattanooga. It's $195, I think, is their flat delivery fee. Uh, the, and these are incredible margins, too, because they actually own the inventory. They're not like Uber Eats mm. or like Instacart, where they're actually just pairing drivers with a store. They actually own the inventory in that store. So they, they don't make their money on the delivery. They make their money on the, the stuff itself. So it, it makes for a really good process, but it's amazing. You should definitely look out for GoPuff and Joker. That's interesting. I, I never would have even thought about that from a retail like, experience. And, and, and going back to, you, you mentioned something about uh, Dick's Sporting Goods and how they, they've transformed their, their, especially from the in-store pickup. Are they having to adjust the store layout in order to accommodate the new e-commerce order ordering and also from the in-store pickup? Are, are, are they just keeping the stores the same? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when COVID first hit, some of these companies had you know, kind of, they thought about Bopus, they had tried to implement it, but they never really had, they didn't have that desire from customers to, to use it really. Um, and so they, they hadn't really fully invested in it. They would put a couple parking spaces out there. They would have uh, a box, you know, something behind the, 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 the checkout counters where they would keep, you know, the 10 online orders that they would have for the day. That's what they had. Now you're having these companies that are learning to optimize these things. At the beginning of the pandemic, it was, hey, we need Bopus and we need it in the next three days. However you can do it, figure it out. But people need to be able to buy stuff online and pick it up in store. And now they're looking to optimize that. So you have Target, Walmart, and others looking to either build micro-fulfillment centers onto the back of their stores or build them within uh, existing infrastructure. And these are going to be, you know, five to 8,000 square foot highly automated fulfillment centers where they can really uh, crank out 30 uh, items, skew orders in, you know, 30 minutes. That's happening. It's just going to take some time. They take, I read that it takes um, Walmart about $10 million to build one of those onto the, to the back of each store. They're planning about 20 of them this year. So there is some, there's some thought going into how can we make the best use of our space because it's not exactly efficient to have uh, target walk, target, you know, uh, workers walking around the entire store picking 50 items. If we can keep 30 of those items here in the corner of the store and make it much quicker, it's obviously more efficient. So they're thinking about that. So, so with a lot of these retailers, they're they're in the weeds of already planning for their holiday campaigns in, in July. It's almost Christmas planning in July. So, but how with all the difficulties that they're facing on the supply chain, how can they possibly plan these holiday campaigns, not knowing if that inventory is going to be there to begin with? Yeah, that's an awesome question. And I think if we look to Prime Day as our precedent for what we can expect for the holiday season, I think we can get some nice insights. And what happened on Prime Day was retailers, um, there were the biggest retailers, the Best Buy, Kohl's, Walmart, Target, they all tried to match some of Amazon's deals. But on Amazon's website itself, more than 50% of their sales now come from the third-party sellers. And those sellers didn't put on much deals. There was not very much, uh, not very many deals on Prime Day from people that weren't the big box retailers. And the reasons were, there's generally strong demand. They didn't feel the need to uh, put forth deals. And also, they have really low inventory. So I think you're going to have the same thing playing out over the holidays where you have pretty strong demand, 
you have really low inventory, and you don't have that pressure to discount as much as you have in years past. You saw it in 2020. Um, you saw that retailers across the board, brands and retailers, in many different sectors, they sold a lot less, but actually made more money or made the same amount of money as they did last year because they didn't have that pressure to discount. Their margins were much better at the end of the year. And I think a lot of retailers are taking that, that knowledge and those lessons of ordering prudently into this year, even though they do see a strong holiday season upcoming, if you look at the inventory levels, they're simply not growing fast enough to get us anywhere near where we were, let's say 2019 on a sales to inventory ratio, getting up to the holiday season. We're not gonna be anywhere near there. That's not to say that there's not gonna be um, inventory there. There will be, they've been building inventory, but there will be empty shelves, uh, most certainly. Uh, it will be spotty and dependent on you know what's the hot products. But if you're a retailer right now, you're thinking of how can we, how can we drum up sales with the stuff we know we're going to have, and then how can we make sure that we get the most out of what we do have or what we might not get more of. You see what I'm saying? Sure. So so a lot of what we've talked about so far is is obviously inventory issues, and then the e-commerce experience, and then the micro fulfillment centers. But what about the in-store experience? Are are you seeing any creative plays there to to get shoppers, you know, back in those brick and mortar stores to enjoy the shopping experience? Yeah, shopping shops are all the rage. So Target has become, it's really actually quite interesting. Target has become what the mall used to be, where it has hmm. all of these different brands and, and curated selections, but it's all under one roof. So they've got their Disney shopping shop. They've got, uh, they've got their Apple shopping shops now. They've got the Ulta Beauty uh, shopping shops. So they're creating these, these small experiences with highly trained, um, highly trained workers there that are different from the everyday Target worker. These have intimate knowledge of Apple, in- intimate knowledge of Ulta. Those types of experiences, those are definitely happening. Uh, I also think to Dick's Sporting Goods, I'll, I'll jump back to them. So they're, they've launched five different concept stores that they are testing out right now. They've got one that's called the House of Game, which has turf fields, and it's got all of these different things where you can test out equipment. You can, it's got a whole batting cage. They've also got uh, three different concepts that are off-price concepts, which I think is awesome, by the way. Sports really doesn't have a very robust off-price environment at all, sports gear. Mm-hmm. And they've got, a, uh, they've got a fifth one called um, uh, Popular Lands or, or People's Lands, which is just focused on outdoor gear. So these, these concept stores, these smaller format stores are really all the rage right now. You have Dick's opening five different ones. You have, uh, look at Dollar General on the off-pricers. They're launching this whole brand called Pop Shelf. I'm not sure if you've heard of these, but it's more or less a target, but the size of a Dollar General. So very vibrant, uh, lots of direct-to-consumer products and things you can only get there, but very, you know, low cost and just aiming at kind of a middle ground between the Dollar General customer and the target customer. I think all of these ideas, it's just, it's a time of experimentation and Allbirds, Nike, Under Armour, all of these brands are opening up new stores. And they're, this is actually the first year and I think more than a decade where we're going to have more retail openings than, than retail closures. And a lot of it is because of these concept stores. Oh wow! Because that I was going to ask about the, the what they're calling the the digital. I, I think that's the the digital spaces, um, which is obviously a play off of physical and digital. And it sounds like Dix is is the one that's leading the charge as far as those AR, uh, I, I guess, experience are concerned. Is is Dix the only one that's really out there experimenting, or are there other stores that you're seeing that are doing this experimentation? 
they're doing it really loudly. I mean, there certainly are others. So Nike is opening up uh, some some different types of concept stores as well. Where and Allbirds is another one that's actually really cool. They have like a running track that has all of these crazy sensors on it that you basically run on it, and it tells you exactly what type of shoe is best for your foot and your running style. I found that that one's really cool. So there's definitely others that are trying it, but Dix is just trying it. They're like it's like shotgun spread. Five different stores at one time. They opened three different concept stores in 2020 alone, and and. CEO Lauren Hobart has come out and said that they that these could just be tests for the time being, but I think they're going to stick around. Uh, and this is just another thought on on a on a full price company having an off price um, outlet. I think it's brilliant. You look at Nordstrom with Nordstrom Rack. Basically, whatever inventory that they don't sell, they don't have to just dish it off and liquidate it. They have another outlet to try to sell it through. I buy stuff on Nordstrom Rack all the time. But in any case, uh, yes, there are plenty that are out experimenting. Now you're you're obviously a big player in in the content game with Freight Waves. You're you're hosting on a lot of different shows, but one of your your pet projects, I would say, is probably is something that I, I just feel it in in the writing of it is your point of sale email. Why did you want to start up an email newsletter? Why did you think that it was valuable? Well, I got to say, it wasn't originally my idea. So Craig kind of made a <laughs> made an announcement and said that we want to start these communities. We want to start these kind of you know very uh, niche focused content on certain verticals in uh, in the shipper world, right? We had kind of thought of shippers as this monolith, but they don't think of themselves like that. They think of themselves as retailers or as automotive manufacturers or as CPG producers, right? So uh, when, when they said that we're going to start these communities, my first thought was I would love to do one. One, because as I told you with when as I was writing those kind of long form papers is that I really wanted to focus in on one area and, and kind of just like have a craft, right? I wanted to own an, uh, own a vertical. And retail is just the most exciting to me. It's going through so much change, uh, whether it be through fulfillment and the way that people shop and the way that retailers are building their stores. There's so much going on and it's just constantly changing. And um, and and I think this is another thing that throughout COVID, I did, we obviously didn't know COVID was going to be a thing in October when I started this, but it just, you know, it, it came on so quickly uh, when, when COVID hit and retailers had to just completely changed because they their, their stores were shut down. Uh, so there was, there was just so much to talk about. And this is just the beginning. I mean, COVID accelerated the changes that had been in the making for the last two decades. And we're just in the early, in, early innings of this. I mean, obviously, it's a lot of great insight that we wish we had. I wish I had a, a much more time to, to dive into all of it. But final two questions. First, or not really questions, but kind of a statement and then a question. But first, you got to say something nice about the Jacksonville Jaguars. And then second, where can people find more of your work? Um, I'll say I actually do like the helmets, uh, the, the, the black to fade. I, I kind of the black to gold. I do. I like the helmets and I like your colors. I mean, I, I, I sent you those shoes the other day. It's, it's a good color scheme. I'll admit. Um, and then they can find more. You can you can sign up for point of sale at freightwaves.com slash POS. You can also find uh, I also do another show on Tuesday called Great Quarter Guys, which is kind of a freight finance show. Uh, you can just Google, you know, Freightwaves Great Quarter Guys, freightwaves.com slash Great Quarter Guys uh, to check out that. All right. Thank you for being a good sport, Andrew, because if the, the roles were reversed, I would not be saying anything nice about the Titans. So You, you won't be saying anything nice insight. come season time anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see about that. It's Trevor Town now. <laughs> All right. I think we got Charlie back finally. So let's go ahead and bring her in and let's go ahead and ask her about her favorite Olympic sport. I was watching you answer it and then now I want to actually hear it. <laughs> Hi, Blythe. It's so good to be here with you and loved all the content and segments you showed. So my favorite Olympic sport is gymnastics, and it goes back to me being a gymnast when I was growing up. Um, and I, I relate a lot of my 
time in gymnastics to my time in the business world and really believe that being on a team sport is just, it's so similar to being on a business team and working together. And it really comes down to each individual contributing. So I'm fascinated with like where the sport and the competition has gone since I was a performer. I mean, the tricks they are whipping out these days, I, I never even imagined. So excited to, to watch some over the next few days. Right, because I mean Simone Biles is is creating moves that they that they have to name after her because they exactly. just never existed before. So it's just it's I think I'm I'm right there with you. Um, the, the gymnasts are are one of the top sports that I love to watch at the Olympics. Now now going to the business side of things, you're the founder and president of CS Recruiting. So from it, it's an executive recruiting firm specializing in the supply chain, logistics, transportation, and freight areas. Why did you want to focus on these industries? What what initially attracted you to it? I fell into the industry like probably many others that are are still working in it today. So I started my career actually in the marketing and advertising industry. And I really think that having that foundation of selling a service and the customer is always right and you kind of bend over backwards for the customer translated very well to recruiting, but also really the logistics industry. So I found myself in the early 2000s as a recruiter in a transportation technology firm, really learned the business. And I think like many others, once you really grasp that this world operates on the supply chain, that transportation provides us with anything and everything, it's just such an exciting industry to be in. So really happy that I I did fall into it and find myself here today because I honestly couldn't imagine doing anything different. Likewise, I think all of us sort of just find ourselves in this industry and then it takes a hold of us and it and it doesn't let us go. Now, with the big hot topic over the last few weeks, especially over the last year, has been what's been called the, the great resignation where employees are, are looking for better opportunities elsewhere. Now, it, from the recruiting perspective, you have the unique insight of seeing it from both sides of the coin, from the company side to the employee side. Yeah. Now, what trends have you noticed sort of taking place from that from each side of the coin there. Yeah, I think the pandemic changed everything to be quite honest. There is a huge demand for logistics, transportation, supply chain talent in the market right now, and the supply of talent is just not there at the volume that it should be. So, it's certainly a candidate's market. They are completely in control. Um, so for job seekers out there, I would say this is the time to look. If you've been curious or have certain aspirations of where you want to take your career, the jobs and opportunities are plentiful. And from the employer standpoint, I think employers are just getting a lot a lot smarter and really thinking about how they humanize their work environment. So after you know a year or more of lockdown, we all really had some time to just prioritize and think about what's important to us. And obviously, working from home became something that was you know familiar to us after um, many years of it, it kind of being pushed to the side. So, um, from an employer standpoint, having a hybrid model is more important than ever now, and really treating remote days of the week or remote employees the same as those in office 
in addition to that, just having some respect for your team members and those that you report to, those that report up to you. Um, you know, thinking of these individuals as other people who have other things going on outside of work. And um, it is so true that happy employees will produce more. So it's not so much about pushing the numbers or, you know, um, you know, driving them with fear, but treating them the right way so they feel respected and appreciated. And, you know, I, I think that's very obvious, it seems, but there are a lot of companies who have made a lot of progress and there's still a lot of companies who have a long way to go on that front. Now, speaking of those companies that have a long way to go, there, there's sort of been that mantra of the, you know, the first one in the office and the last one to leave. Th- those are the ones that, that get rewarded the most. And with COVID now, it, it's sort of restored the work life or the desire for the work life balance that, that a lot of employees crave. Are you starting to see some of the, the, the old guard within the logistics industry sort of uh, become flexible to those new working concepts or are they just sort of doomed to, to die a slow death? Honestly, I I do think that the companies that are offering hybrid or remote opportunities are the ones that are doing it right and kind of paving the path for the future. So I don't want to say that these other companies are necessarily going to drown because everyone is looking for something different. And, you know, I'll tell you, we've talked to plenty of candidates over the last year that were like, I am looking for a job where I can go into the office, get me away from my spouse, get me away from (laughs) my kids. Um, But I would say that majority of the population is looking just for more flexibility. And so the only way to offer flexibility is to trust your employees. The only way to trust them is to hire the right people. Um, But it really all starts with your culture and what you have to offer. Um, And just knowing that, again, if they're happy and they feel trusted, they will be loyal and they will be focused on producing. And so it's much more than just, uh, I guess, adding a ping pong table or a foosball table to to the office in order to entice these workers to come in. I, I, I imagine it's more of the camaraderie and the team building that people still crave, but they still want to be able to have the option to work from home. Is that a safe bet? Yeah, it is. And I think companies just have to get creative. I mean, we have moved to an entirely virtual office and For us, it's been a game changer in a really positive way. So we still bring our team together once or twice a month. We've got, you know, stronger relationships than ever through Zoom, but also through these opportunities where we can just hang out for, you know, three, four hours at a time and get to know each other on an individual basis. So, you know, there's there's so much to be said on the topic. You know, when you think about cutting out the commute, when you think about the overhead of an office and allowing people to work from home, and then also just, you know, people are going to work harder if they're at home and they have time to, you know, prioritize their life and and have that real work-life balance. So I'm really proud of a lot of the brokerages in this industry that um, have shifted their mindset and kind of gotten out of that old school mentality. And they're seeing the results. So they're starting to believe in them. And um, it's it's a pleasure to work with companies like that, that just have an open mind. Um, and, you know, the advantage for them is that they are going to get the best talent if they don't care where that person lives. Mm-hmm. It's not about, you know, limiting your team to 15 miles of a radius around the office. It's about, I'm going to find the best person for this position. And it doesn't matter where they live as long as we've got a good remote model and um, we can onboard them, train them and motivate them properly. 
You mentioned the the benefits of connecting with your team over Zoom and and obviously recording through Zoom and 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 making content is something that is is increasing in demand. And I'm curious to see are are you noticing any trends within that particular sort of job segment? You know, the the people who are out there creating content and and, and podcasts and things like that. Are you seeing those positions start to open up at some of these companies, or is it still something that's that's only sort of scratching the surface? Yeah, no, I think good news for you, Bife, that marketing <laughs> is starting to get a lot more attention in this industry. So um, historically, I would say we always had a handful of marketing roles that we were working on at a time. And, you know, some of these may be with shippers, some may be with 3PLs, asset providers, technology companies, definitely seeing an influx there. And what the trend I'm seeing that I'm finding interesting is that a lot of our clients that are, you know, recognizing that this is an important investment they're looking for talent either at the very high end or the very low end. And mm-hmm. that is their investment. So we have clients that have committed to you know, a marketing budget. They understand that the world is online. They need to have a social media presence. And we're seeing a lot of companies that are like, we want to get a CMO in place. This is the first position of its kind. They're going to build out a team. They're going to bring strategy and execute it. And then we're also seeing companies that, they're ready to invest, they recognize it, but they're not ready to make a six-figure hire. So looking for a social media coordinator or minimal risk, but still dipping their toes into this idea of having a budget around advertising, having a social media brand and presence and being able to keep up with it. So I think what we're going to start to see in the next couple of months, I don't think this is going away. I think companies are you know, attracting business and talent this way. So we're going to start to fill in that middle and, and see opportunities for higher level independent contributors, managers, directors, really to support that whole initiative. Love that. Great news for me, like you said. But uh, speaking of the, you know, sort of the attention economy, you're, you're out here, you're creating content, you're, you're, you're out here on all these different shows. I think you were just on Put That Coffee Down last week. Um, mm-hmm. You're also a, a panelist for the Ladies Leadership Coalition. Why did you want to start creating content? And do you see a place for, for creating your own company branded content in the future? It's a great question. And it, it really is something I've always done internally. And I honestly think the pandemic, it allowed me to slow down. It gave me a little more time, but also really forced me to think about the importance of being able to connect online. And it's amazing when you just start to share information and be vulnerable, how people respond. So, you know, one one big move for us is we've gotten to a point where we are a big enough company that we can truly put the right people in the right seat on our bus. So we've got a little over 30 employees right now. And over the last year and a half, we have pulled two former recruiters into project management, social media marketing positions. So that has really boosted our presence and um, really proud of what that team has been able to accomplish, just leveraging their industry knowledge. And we've got some fun things in the work. So can't give away too much, but I would say follow us on LinkedIn and um, you'll you'll definitely be entertained over the next couple of months by our posts and, and what's in our feed. I love it. I'm a big fan of using the employee evangelists in order to to help them own the content and because they're really in the trenches right there with you. So I, I I love that aspect. Now, now as if you don't have enough 
of the career sort of demands on your plate. You're also a wife. You're a mother to three with one of the cutest dogs I've ever seen. But you didn't start CS until after the birth of your third child. Take me back to that day that you decided that you wanted to own your own business. What, what was that? What was the catalyst that, that made you want to say, I have to do this? Yeah, you know, I was always an entrepreneur at heart. I grew up with parents and grandparents that always had their own business. Um, but honestly, it was, I don't want to say it was a mistake because it's been the best mistake I've ever made, but it just happened. So I am the type of person that I am committed to delivering. Like I said, I have this service industry background. I want to be able to provide, especially if there's a fee due and there's a relationship that trusts me. So the, the business really started just as I became overwhelmed. I started to take on a lot of searches independently. I was a one-woman show. I got to a point where I recognized I'm either going to fail if I don't you know, staff up or I'm going to need to you know, really scale my team to be able to service and deliver at the same quality. So my first hire was actually my husband. So um, he came from the industry. He had a lot of transportation supply chain knowledge that he added. And from there, we were able to grow. And you know, I don't want to say it was a company that started overnight, but it wasn't a formal process like you'd expect where we had a business plan and we went to a bank and got a loan. It was just like we were doing good work. We were bringing a quality service to the industry. One thing led to another and the hard work paid off. So that's that's kind of the, the story in a nutshell. I love that because it, most of, of, I mean, it's it, just in my personal experience of, of business has just been just get, you know, day by day, try to have a plan, but it's really just about figuring out day by day and then hoping that, you know, the decisions that you're making in the trenches are, are going to work out for the best. Now, we've talked a lot in, in this chat about, you know, that work-life balance and, and how the, the, the big worker shift has been happening. You yourself are a big proponent of, of yoga and meditation to achieve that work-life balance. Can you Tell us a little bit about why getting into the practice of, of yoga and meditation is so vital. Yeah, you're like speaking my language here. So love it. Um, I actually found yoga at the same year that I started CS recruiting. So there, there is a, a synergy and a connection there. I had just had my third son. I was a runner um, prior and, and really never liked running, but did it uh, as punishment to myself. So <laughs> I went to my first yoga class. Again, I was a gymnast, so it just felt really natural. Um, and I found that it was the first time in my life where I had dedicated space to think and to move slow. So especially in this industry, if you are not on all times, if you are not fast paced and you know hustling, you're not going to make it. And that's how I operate my life, except for that hour I get to spend on my mat every day where I really just get to think and be still and be with my own thoughts. Um, so it's been a really, just a, a big difference in my life to know that no matter how hectic every day is, I have that space every morning when I get up to practice. And then I do meditate throughout the day, like you said, which just helps me clear my mind. Um, and it's something I'm, I'm really committed to. It's, it's hard to carve out the time, but just like anything else, once you realize the benefit and you start to feel the impact, it's time for it. That makes a ton of sense because I, it, it's one of those things that you have to, you never regret a workout. And I'm sure meditation is is the same exact thing and, and also yoga as well. Do, have you had a moment where after you completed a practice or, or completed a meditation routine that you've had a big aha moment? 
all the time. So <laughs> what, what usually happens to me is I meditate twice a day, first in the morning, once in the afternoon. And you know, I've always got some something in my mind, some problem I want to solve, some dilemma that's weighing me down. And you know, I'll I'll do my research, I'll connect with my network, try and figure it out. And then I realized again, like you just gotta slow down. And so I kind of turn myself off, give myself that chance to meditate. And then I, I come out of it and not to say my problems are solved right away, but I have clarity. Um, I have ideas. I try and jot things down right away because sometimes they're crazy ideas that go nowhere, but usually it just gives me a little more confidence about my decision or a little more direction on what I need to do to solve the problem. So, you know, it's, it's really, really beneficial and it's, it's more intimidating than it really is to get into. Well, uh, speaking, I guess, the, the, the intimidating aspect, but where should people start if they even want to think about getting involved in, in some kind of starting a meditation routine? You just got to start slow. So there's some mm-hmm. really great apps out there. I meditate 23 minutes twice a day. I do a specific type of meditation. So it is a huge time commitment. But if you can start and you can silence your mind for two minutes a day, and then next week you bump it up to three minutes five minutes, all of a sudden you start to realize like, I don't have to meditate. I get to meditate. And Mm. uh, I think a lot of people just think of it as like, oh, I don't have time for that. But it really, you make time by creating this space in your head and, and time to just slow down. We all deserve that. I love that because obviously the big ethos of of what we've been talking about here is achieving that work-life balance. So if you were going to give one piece of advice to the current workers uh, of the world right now, what would you tell them in order to go after and achieve that, that dream job? So, you know, as a recruiter and a a lifelong full-time networker, I think you've got to surround yourself with people that are going to help you accomplish your goals. So I do always come back to that phrase, you know, it's all about who you know. It's not about a community or a family you were born into. It's about what you make of the relationships that are available to you. So, you know, having a recruiter that knows your background, that is looking out for you is one type of relationship. Having mentors, having, you know, former bosses or colleagues that you can turn to. But Everything in life is about human connection and bringing parties together, forming relationships. So that's where I always say to start. Think about who you know. Think about what you've done for those individuals, what they may be able to do for you, and um, be vulnerable. You know, share your dreams and aspirations because otherwise they're not going to be able to help you to their fullest. I love that. Such a great piece of advice to to leave people with. Now, now, if folks want to follow your work, I, I assume LinkedIn is the best place, or or is there any other place where where people can follow your work? Yeah, LinkedIn is where it's at for us. So <laughs> our company page, my personal page, we put a lot of content out. We feature a lot of posts about our own team and kind of how we're doing things. Um, and I would like to say that I, you know, I'm really proud of the culture we've built and hope it sets an example for our clients and also those candidates that are just looking for something different. I love that. All great pieces of advice. And we'll be sure to link in the show notes and in the description of where people can follow your work and along with Andrew Cox, who was on the show earlier today. So thank you so much, Charlie, for, for coming on the show. Thanks, Blythe. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. All right. Well, that about wraps up for, for this edition. Sorry about the technical difficulties that, that we experienced earlier in the show, but that's the nature of, of live TV. We got to roll with the punches. And that's why I always have backup 
topics. So if you are a podcaster or if you are in someone that is is broadcasting in a live events area, always have backup topics because that's why I randomly started talking about being a good podcast guest on other people's shows. So so it's an opportunity to to have those backup topics. So then that way you're not just looking like a deer in headlights, which is what I, I felt like I was looking like for a minute. So we talked about the, and I'll, I'll dive into more of this next week uh, or about being a good podcast guest and getting on other people's shows and then also getting other people on your show as well. So we'll dive in more in depth with that next week. But thank you guys for, for tuning in to another episode of Cyberly. Once again, my name is Blythe Brimley. You can catch the replays of our shows just by searching Cyberly up in your favorite podcast app. Apple, Spotify, whatever your pleasure is, just search us up on also on Vimeo as well. We have a lot of videos there. I think we still have some videos up on YouTube, but you can also find more of my work on digitaldispatch.io. Until next week, we will be back right here Thursday, 2 p.m. on Freightwaves TV, and I will see you all real soon. 